0: Hello and welcome to Dear Jane. I'm your host, Scott Baker. This episode of Dear Jane brought to you by Cogency Strategic. If you have a ballot initiative coming up in your state this year, you need to connect with the messaging professionals at Cogency Strategic. They're singularly focused on winning your campaign for life. They know how to communicate on the issue and they know what it takes to win. You can reach them today by emailing info at Cogency Strategic com. So the name of the podcast, of course, is Dear Jane, and that's named in honor of Jane Roe and the Roe v. Wade. Uh, the real Jane was Norma McCorvey, and someone who came to know Norma and worked with her to overturn Roe v. Wade was Alan Parker with the Justice Foundation. Alan has a new book out called Reversing Roe v. Wade, My Journey with Roe, Doe, and God. Alan, thank you for joining us here today. Appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Scott. It's a great honor to be with you.
0: So, why did Norma want to overturn the Roe v. Wade decision?
1: Well, that's a really deep question. And I began to, I met her in the year 2000. And that was about five years after she had switched sides from being a pro abortion advocate to a pro life advocate. So, I asked her those questions. And in fact, our book has sworn testimony from Norma McCorvey about what she told the Supreme Court were the reasons why she changed. And so I'll sur- sort of summarize them. It, but it's very dramatic reading in her own words in the book. What happened was she always thought that abortion should be kind of rare and only for difficult circumstances, such as she thought her circumstances won was when in 1970, she did want an abortion. Norma, this was her third child. Her first child was sort of taken from her by her own mom because Norma was a drug dealer and living on the streets and, you know, probably not doing a great job being a mom. The second pregnancy, she placed for a traditional adoption. And the third pregnancy, she's pregnant again. She says, I just don't want to go through all that again. I, I want an abortion. But abortion was illegal in Texas. And uh she did uh then so she went to she went to an abortion clinic, I think, and it had been shut down because there were illegal clinics. Someone referred her to Sarah Weddington and Linda Coffey, who were her attorneys in getting the Roe v. Wade case. And Norma explains how they didn't explain it to her, like they didn't show her any pictures of fetal development. They didn't explain. It. And when she heard the word abortion, do you want abortion? She thought it was like John Wayne, abort the mission. She would suddenly become unpregnant and she didn't want to be pregnant. Now, Hmm. Norma didn't have much education beyond sixth or seventh, eighth grade. And uh, I don't remember exactly where she quit, but she, she was street smart, but not educated. And she felt like by the time I met her, that she'd been used and abused by the The legal system. They were looking for a low-income white woman to be the plaintiff. Well, then she began to work in abortion clinics to make a living. After Roe, and what she saw in the clinics changed her mind. The reality of abortion, not the lovely theory that it should be a woman's choice and it's empowering to her, and she'll meet with Dr. Kildare, who's full of compassion, explain all her options to her, and take care of her by safely doing this gentle procedure. None of that was true. She describes in her sworn testimony, uh, it's generally a lower quality doctor who's happy to sit around and kill human children all day long. Most doctors, even of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, who support it, won't do it. Because when you do it, you see the baby parts. You see it's a human being. Uh, So it has to be a kind of an unusual person who can kill human beings all along and not let it. Even the abortion industry, for example, has admitted when some of their staff have to look at the baby parts after an abortion. It can be a very traumatizing event for clinic staff. So Norma got traumatized and she saw them treating women like cattle and very disorganized. So I will say then even her conscience began to bother her. And when uh, the Right to Life movement, in the form of Operation Rescue, moved in next door to her clinic, and began witnessing to her and caring her, caring for her, and took her to church one day, she surrendered when she heard the Gospel of John three sixteen, and her conscience was bothering her before, but she didn't know what to do, and that helped her come out of the movement. She got baptized in the swimming pool in Dallas, Texas, uh, hmm. that same year, 1995.
0: On ABC, you do go, in, you do go into great detail uh, in the book and 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 tell her story a little bit. What's interesting about her is the media has tried to paint her before as sort of um, split-minded or confused. Or uh, I mean, her her journey on the issue wasn't a straight path, was it?
1: No, and it's a complicated issue, and it was complicated for her. But once she made the decision for the next—I represented her from about 2000 to 2012, I think she died. Uh, she dedicated her life to overturning Roe v. Wade. There was there was a documentary that came out three years after her death, so she was mm-hmm. not around to say what she thought. Yeah. And shortly before she died, we had a final— a couple of conversations. An early one was, she said, Al, I'm doing a pro-life documentary with some guys from England, and they're paying me for my story. Now, that was uh, perfectly normal and acceptable. If someone does a story about your life, they pay you for the rights to your life. But she said it was pro-life. Well, three years after they die, they say, Norma, had a change of heart. And she just did the abortion thing for the money. And she, no, she switched to the pro-life side for the money. Well, if you wanted money, it's on the pro-abortion side. And these guys were paying her for her story. And then I believe, and I put in the book, I believe they distorted it. And no one's ever seen the, the footage or the full footage.
0: So when did your, you said you started to represent her in about uh, 2000. How did you meet her? Sort of take us to to how how your stories started to intersect. Okay. In 1998,
1: women who had been hurt by abortion, physically botched abortions, began to come to us in 1998. And we had formed a Women's Health Protection Task Force because women also are bloodied and butchered butchered and left emotionally scarred and traumatized by abortion. But there was nothing you could do about it, except maybe get some regulations at that time. In 2000, I went to my first March for Life, and I just came back from one recently. And uh, I had read Norma's book, and a lawyer had asked us if we would represent Norma in a case where she was going to reveal for the first time she was against abortion and help a little 16-year-old girl who'd been forced to have an abortion uh, against her will recover some damages. So coming back from that uh, thing, Norma saw me, and, and I didn't know it. There was a huge snowstorm, kind of providential, that made her stay in Dallas an extra two or three days, and she attended the hearing was I where I was speaking, and she liked what I had to say. And she, she on, on the way home from that, it hit me that Norma and Sandra could not only file friend of the court briefs in lots of cases, they could file what's called a rule 60 motion in their own original cases, asking the Supreme court to reverse their own cases and that it was possible. I'm a former professor of civil, uh, civil procedure in the law. And, uh, this was possible. So I prayed for about 30 days, actually, because at that time I said, I said to the Lord, is this really you or is this me? And, and I said, nobody can break through the stronghold, Lord. I said, it's the biggest abortion distortion, we called it. No one can break through the brick wall. And, but I knew I was going to also collect the testimonies of women hurt by abortion because the pro-life movement had been showing that it's a, a life that's, The two great lies are it's not a baby and it's good for women. As long as people believe that, abortion will be legal. And the pro-life movement had been showing it's a baby. You can do that with science if people will listen. But the only way to prove it's not good for women, I felt, is through the truthful testimony of women hurt by abortion. So I prayed for 30 days. And this is kind of how the book begins with what I call the, the call of God on my life. And other people know, you know, if you hear or sense God, you pray into it. And on February 11th, 2000, Sandra Kano called me, and that was the Doe of Doe v. Bolton. So February 11th, Sandra calls me, and on February 14th, Valentine's Day, the Monday after that weekend, I was going to Dallas to see Norma. So I talked to Doe, Doe and Roe the same weekend, sort of.
0: So people are, aren't, and I know I'll speak for myself, I'm not nearly as familiar with the Doe. I got to get this, make sure I got this right. Everybody knows Roe, the Roe story, but not so much the Doe story. Hel- kind of help us understand and appreciate the importance of Sandra's story.
1: Right. Well, it's the case that created the health exception that made abortion available on demand up until birth under the Roe and Doe cases. So Roe, it had a little compromise framework that most people in America might think is okay. First trimester, no abortion. Second trimester, you can regulate her for the health of the woman. Third trimester, after viability, you can even ban abortion. And I'm not saying that's right. No abortion is good. It's a crime against humanity. But that was kind of popular then, maybe still popular. And, but then Roe at the end said, but see, Doe v. Bolton. And that's Sandra's case, and it said, "Oh, Sandra is a woman who's desperate to have an abortion. She's had children taken away from her. She can't handle any more children. Her psychological well-being would be severely compromised." And so, therefore, psychological well-being is an aspect of health, and if a wouldn't be woman wouldn't be happy. And she finds an abortionist to agree with her and take her money to do the abortion. Then she can have an abortion. And they struck down a three-judge therapeutic abortion model. Georgia had a law that said if three doctors think you need an abortion, you can get one. And if you wanted good medical care, wouldn't three opinions be better than one? You know? Uh, Yeah. But what happened that day, so what happened that day, Sandra told me, Mr. Parker, That case has been a doom on my shoulders ever since I got involved in it. I never wanted an abortion. That's a lie. I fled to Oklahoma during the pendency of the case because they told me they packed my bags and were going to have to have me have an abortion in Grady Public Hospital the next day. And I fled the case. I took my bags and said, I'm not ever going to kill a child. I don't want to kill a child. And so, Man, you talk about fraud and deception in the case. Yeah. <laughs> that was amazing. So then I actually said to her, where do you live? I didn't even know. I never met her. And she said, I live in Atlanta. And I said, well, wow, I'm going to be in Atlanta next week. Can I meet you? And she said, yes, sir. I'll meet you wherever you want. And the, she was thrilled that she could clear her name at the court. She had actually come out publicly in about 1988 when Operation Rescue was barricading clinics in Atlanta, she drove around. No one had ever known who Mary Doe was. But when she saw them being willing to go to jail to stop abortion, she said, I've got to do something. And she began a struggle to to release the records. And her own attorney tried to keep her from revealing her name in the case,
0: yeah, you and you talk about that in the book. She wants so it's 1988, and she wants to uh, go public with her opposition and come, come, just come true with her st- story. Basically, tell her story. Her attorney won't let her. Why is that?
1: Because they were trying to protect the case. Doe v. Bolton, the woman's right to choose. Who, who's they was,
0: though? Who's okay. they? You think?
1: Well, that. Uh, it was the ACLU attorney named Mar- Margie Fitzhames in the city of Atlanta. And that's who was representing her at the time. She had a team around her, but that was the lead lawyer. And uh, so I got this incredible story of fraud and deception that night. Uh, my wife came home with a little book called The Bed's Too Short and other spiritual essays and said, I think this is for you. And it says it. Have you ever heard of Isaiah 28, 20? The bed's Mm -hmm. too short and the
0: covers Mm -hmm. are too cramped. No, No, not until I read your book had I heard of it. Yeah,
1: that's right. And so it said, if you get this, you better go with God and your ministry's going to grow or you'll be too cramped. I thought, okay, I am seeking your word, Lord. But being a cautious lawyer, I went and looked up the scripture the next morning. And it starts Isaiah 28, 14 to 22. And I go into this at length in the book, but I don't have to here. But I just want to state this, because this is why I wrote the book, really. I wasn't looking for this passage, and now I'm quoting God's word. In Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 22, he says, Thus says the Lord to the mocking judges or rulers who rule my people in Jerusalem. So he's talking to mocking or scornful rulers. He said to them, "'Behold, you've made a covenant with death. "'You've made an agreement with the grave. "'You don't think the overwhelming scourge will reach you "'because you've covered yourself with fraud and deception.'" Wow, and I kind of got goosebumps. Roe and Doe are a covenant with death entered into by the Supreme Court. Open wide, O grave. Here come 63 million people or more who'll never see the light of day. And it was covered with fraud and deception. I just heard this story from uh, Sandra about pure fraud, not just the fraud that it's good for women or abortion is safe, you know, the normal fraud, just flat out fraud.
0: Yeah, uh, that, that's that's crazy. And, uh, then,
1: and just two more things he said yeah. that, that convinced me to go forward. He said, I will make justice the measuring line, righteousness the plumb line, hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, waters will overflow the secret place, And your covenant with death will be annulled. The agreement with the grave will not stand.
0: So you took that as a promise that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. Exactly.
1: I did. And Hmm. for three convincing witnesses. One, it said, if it's no longer just, that was the rule I was going to use in civil procedure. Waters overflowing the secret place I knew would be the tears of women as they gave us their legally admissible testimonies. No woman that I've talked to has ever done it without crying. And I knew they would do that because it's so hard. And uh, then the third, he said, for I will rise up as at Mount Perizim to be stirred up as in the Valley of Gibeon to do my amazing work. I didn't know what Ball Perizim meant. I'd been telling them nobody can break through the stronghold of abortion. My Bible had a little reference, and Ball Perazim means the Lord, the master of breakthroughs. It's one of the names of God mm. in the mm. Bible. And I had been telling, so I said, okay, Lord, if you're breaking through, and you're going to do amazing things. So I sort of tell the story at the beginning, and then the rest of the book is the amazing things God did to reverse Roe v. Wade.
0: Yeah, and it is significant. Uh, it's interesting to see how things sort of evolved. So let's talk a little bit about, your, your journey. So you, you involved with what was originally called the Texas Justice Foundation, uh, becomes the, the justice foundation, but it's not originally a pro-life oriented organization, right? I mean, this wasn't, you didn't get into law, uh, to pursue pro-life changes, correct? I did not.
1: absolutely not.
0: So how did you end up there?
1: Well, in 1973, my wife and I got married, and we were really lost as a goose in the city. We were living a, a pretty hedonistic college, 1970s lifestyle. and But later, uh, I guess I, in about, let's see, 1981, I went on a marriage retreat, a Catholic marriage encounter, but they allowed 20% of the Protestants to come on and I knew that there was a God, uh, because most people know there's a God. They're a God believer, but they haven't surrendered to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And on that weekend, I just said, God, I know I've been running away. I've been doing my own thing. Whatever you want me to do from this point forward, I surrender. I'm, you're going to be my boss. The Bible says if you confess him as Lord, you'll be saved. And uh, and I, I meant it. I said, if you want me to give up being a lawyer, if you want me to go to Africa... Uh, whatever it is, I'll do. And that weekend, I felt like I was born again. There was a dramatic change in my life. I began to see miracles in my life. I, you could see the Lahans protection before, but I'd pray and miracles occur. My, I was My wife was pregnant with our second daughter at that time. She was placenta previa. We prayed that it changed, and it changed. She had a natural childbirth, and we named that child Christina Faith because of that miracle and later then i just went to a former partner and said i'm thinking of leaving the partnership i was a partner in a law firm and he said really do you have you ever thought about being a law professor i said no but i've been telling god you know me better than i know myself you picked the job for me lord and he said this law school where I'm a professor needs a law professor. They don't even know it. I want to help a friend of mine with cancer. If I could give him your name, I'd feel a lot better when I tell him that this was like two months before school. So I squeaked in as a law professor (laughs) and and God had me a law professor uh, shortly, you know, within a year or two after I'd surrendered my life to him. And then it wasn't until 2000 really that that Norma asked us to represent her, that we really, again, prayed as a a ministry, are we willing to do this? And people in the pro-life movement told me, well, you might lose a lot of funding. We did limited government, free markets, private property, kind of conservative Christian, but to go in pro-life, I remember Carol Everett, who was a, a former abortionist and wrote a book called Scarlet Lady. She said, well, a lot of your funding will dry up, but we laid it all down on the altar, we prayed. We said, Lord, in fact, we actually literally prayed. We threw down a brochure for the justice foundation and took it back up as the staff of God.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you about that. You know, it's, it's always interesting to me and it's, it's great. Uh, We know why the other side is funded because unfortunately um, abortion's a revenue source for them. I mean, as ugly as that sounds, I mean, it, it's true. And so, we understand why they're funded, but um, how, how, how were you who who financially supported uh, your work and, and came around behind Norma and Sandra and said, "Yeah, you know what, we want to invest and make sure that you succeed here." I mean, what was the motivation and, and, and tell us a little bit about that? Give us an encouraging word.
1: All right, well, we were the Texas Justice Foundation and had been for seven years up to that point, 93 to 2000. And when we were now doing a national project, we had to have a national name, and we, we prayed. And actually, this little story is in my book, too. When I first started the Justice Foundation as Texas Justice, I wanted to call it the Texas Legal Foundation because I didn't even know much about justice as a lawyer. I'd been trained at the University of Texas Law School. I was very high up in my class. I was on the law review. But I didn't know much about justice, and neither did they. And uh, so someone else had that name. So again, my wife said, well, why don't you call it the Texas Justice Foundation? And other board members said, yes, we need to reclaim that Lord. Justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. He, He cares about justice immensely. And so we did that. But in 2000, then the board said, we need to do this. And some of the board members, most of the board members stayed with us and uh, uh, dedicated, gave money their own. And there were always people. I remember a gentleman in Ohio, and I can't mention his name, but he's still active in the pro-life movement. If I asked him permission, he probably would give me permission. But as a nonprofit, we have a constitutional right to protect the identity Mm -hmm. of our donors just like the NAACP did when people wanted to destroy the NAACP by shutting them down and doxing and killing their donors and threatening them and having people show up at their house with crosses. That's what the left does, except they don't use the crosses anymore. But they show up in your house like they did to Justice Kavanaugh. One of the amazing things in here is he lived through an assassination attempt to be the fifth vote to overturn Roe v. Wade. And he wasn't known as a brave and courageous judge, to be honest. He yeah. has a tendency to want to please both sides, but he did a courageous act in this
0: case. So as you're working with Roe and Doe, Sandra and, and uh, Norma, uh, what what kind of hurdles and challenges did you run into? Um, maybe some that you expected, but maybe some you didn't expect.
1: All right. And you and. There's a whole chapter on Doe, Sandra, Uh and it's very powerful. It's written by another author, but who gave us permission on that, who was a friend of hers and knew a lot about her life. So there's all that. It's almost a book of testimonies and evidence. It's very fascinating history. But so then what did we do next? Then we needed women hurt by abortion to give us their testimonies. I didn't know any women. Oh, but it turned out I did. When I went to my own Sunday school class, one Sunday to ask my friends in the Sunday school class, please pray for me. We're going to be trying to reverse v. Wade. We need all the prayer we can get. Three women out of the 21 people in the class came up to me afterwards and said, hmm. we'll give you our testimonies. Wow. And the first three came from my own Sunday school class. Huh. That And pastors today tell me, oh, there's no women in our church huh. who've had abortions. I say, pastor, Uh, you're that's clueless they're there and if if you let women tell their testimonies in the court in the in the church other women will come forward to get healing and everywhere we speak either me or the women somebody all at least one or more always come up sheepishly at the very end and say that's me I had an abortion I want to give you my testimony and so that was the hardest at the beginning I went on a lot lot of national radio and television programs. I went on a secular program that had an interesting. I was on Hannity and Combs when we filed Norma's motion to reverse Roe. And afterwards, Alan Combs, who was still alive at that time, he was the liberal, Hannity was Mm -hmm. the conservative. He had me on his radio show where he was the only guest. So it was a very liberal program. He invited me on to try to humiliate me or do say, this isn't true, whatever. And as I talked about the women, he, it was a call-in show. And some member of his own audience that we didn't put up to it or anything called in and said, this man is telling the truth. I was pro-choice. I had an abortion. I didn't think it would be a thing. And it began to eat at me and eat at me and eat at me. And it's a terrible thing to do to women. Somebody from his own audience. Wow. Now, I don't know if she ever filled out a declaration or not, but she told her story on public radio.
0: So one of the things that makes it unique, I mean, the the stories of these women, always powerful, but in your case, these are sworn testimony that can be used in court. Is that right? That is exactly right. Or on the radio or any argument
1: you're in as a pro-lifer, chapter five is just sworn testimonies in little bits and pieces. Like here's one, Uh, I'll just pick one at random. There will be consequences to future pregnancies, depression, afterwards, premature births, non-healthy pregnancies, regular hospital stays during the pregnancy, fear of not having healthy children and your sex life to follow. How many think having an abortion kind of ruins your sex life? That's one of the things that the women will say. And were you told of the consequences? Not at all. I was not told there would be consequences. I know I had no idea another woman, Selena from Georgia, how much it would affect me emotionally. Uh, Tamila from Maryland. No, the emotional consequences were de- devastating. And uh, oh, And here's one from Lisa in Oregon. If I imagine what hell is, then I say it is how my life was before I found counseling and healing. I became an alcoholic lost my will to live, and hated life in general. You or your readers can Hmm. read that. That's the sworn testimony of a woman from Oregon. So here's the big argument we're making today. Why would, and this is why every state should ban abortion. And this is the pro-life argument. And I believe you either quote the women's testimonies or have real women come and speak, but then say, why would we want to devastate women like Sylvia when we have a safe haven law, which will eliminate all burden of parenting for a woman who doesn't want to be a parent without killing the child and causing abortion-related trauma to her? Safe haven is free, unlike abortion. And if you're a woman, I'd say this and I'm saying it, everything I know about abortion came from women. If, why do women get abortion? Some women would say, because I can't afford the medical bills. I don't even know have enough money to do that. How am I going to take care of a child? Well, if you're a woman who says, I don't know where I'm going to pay my medical bills, then you're automatically low income. And every state in the nation will pay all your medical bills for pregnancy, just the exam, the pregnancy, delivery, and aftercare. That's true. Medicaid covers that in all 50 states. And then... If you just think you can't take care of a child, or you don't want to at this time, your choice. It's free, unlike abortion. So why wouldn't we all want to use safe haven? We want to compassionately help women, but killing their child and making them suffer the consequences is not compassion.
0: I think that's such a big, important part of the movement. We're starting to see some uh, some movement in that direction of. Let's address the reasons why people say women say they want to abortion. What are some of the contributing factors? And let's try to address those as best we can. Uh, And then if, as we eliminate those, then we can begin to eliminate abortion.
1: Well, even now, I would just say that that may be one way it gets there legislatively, but right now it like there are 11 state battles going to occur in 2024 Mm -hmm. on whether abortion should be enshrined in the state constitutions. Mm -hmm. And I believe the first group, if we only make the pro-life arguments, we will win for the eighth through the 20th time. We've lost seven in a row, state state proposition, constitution. And when we only make the pro-life argument, which we've been making for 50 years, we only get about 40 to 43% of the population on our side. And you have to have 50. So we only need to get 10 or 15 percent to agree with us that, OK, I think abortion's wrong, but I wanted to help women. And if you're telling me now we're paying all the medical bills for a woman's pregnancy and she can be free to live her life however she chooses afterwards, she can go to college, she can prove, pursue a movie career, she can have Whatever sex she wants. 50, 50 times a week, and, and yet she can't kill the child. That's the one option we're taking. She can have freedom. And that was what Amy Coney Barrett said. This was one of the amazing things God did. Amy Coney Barrett asked that question in the oral argument, and it's written about in the Dobbs opinion. Doesn't the safe haven law eliminate the burden of parenting that Roe was so concerned about for the mother? And the answer is, yes, it does. Everybody's concerned about the burden of parenting. No woman really gets has an abortion to kill a child. They, they have to deny it's a child. They don't say, I want to kill my child.
0: Right, right.
1: And But that what they say is, I don't know how I'm going to take care of this baby. I don't have strength. I don't have the money. Right. Or I don't want to in some fashion. Yeah, but safe haven eliminates all that.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. The name of the book is Reversing Roe v. Wade, My Journey with Roe, Doe, and God. Alan Parker, thank you very much for joining us here today on Dear Jane.
1: Thank you, Scott, for having me and keep up the great work you do.
0: Thanks for listening to Dear Jane. Let's make sure this pro-life podcast gets to as many people as possible. Hit that subscribe button. You can hear Dear Jane every week on your podcast platform of choice. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. I'm your host, Scott Baker. For our producer, Kate Yule, and our editor, Jacob McCormick, thank you for listening to Dear Jane.